Aloha, this is Kelly McHugh White here to introduce episode number four of the Public Art Podcast. Today we talk story with public artist Andy Burley, who led Wailuku's small town big art program's first community collaboration in the fall of 2019. Entitled Lost and Found, he worked with dozens of community members to research, reimagine, and refine a light installation that depicts a stained glass window from Wailuku's St. Anthony's Church before it was lost to a devastating fire in 1977, and you'll hear all about it here. Um, Andy studied philosophy and religion and studio art before delving into a career as a sculpture professor and widely commissioned artist. And it wasn't until 2018 that he broke into the international light art scene while creating video installations for festivals in Germany and Tunisia. Andy is whip smart and thoughtful, and I'm so honored to call him my friend. Please enjoy. Okay, today we are here to speak with Andy Burley. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you? Good, where are we talking to you from today? Um, my current home is in Wailuku on the Big Island. Um, uh, after having spent a year and a half on Maui, we, my family and I took a, um, uh, an, a job opportunity for my wife here on the Big Island, and we call this home now going on a year. Did you say Wailuku Big Island? Did I? Yes. <laughs> Cut. Rewind. That was awesome. <laughs> I'm like looking at all the stuff on my screen and I'm like, oh, Wailuku's up there in the corner and... <laughs> there is a Wailuku on Big Island, I'm told. We've just worked with a Hilo-based artist, Lele Hua Yuen, who told us there is a Wailuku somewhere around Hilo, but I think it's an area. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, that's not where I live at all. <laughs> okay, where are we talking to you from today? We are talking from my home in Waimea on the Big Island. Um, I have Wailuku on the mind, and uh, so yeah, my family and I we uh, we moved here a year ago from Maui, and uh, and are gonna hopefully call this home for a long time. Nice. When you so you were our very first small town big art public art project, and you had applied in February of 2019 but we didn't get to show the world your work until September of 2019. I think we were meant to go in July or August, but we kept getting rained out. Yeah, yeah, we had a we had a couple storm scares and uh, out of an abundance of caution, they had canceled the events and, uh, and it worked out just fine. Yeah, so I'm gonna ask you to tell the story of your small town big art journey. Right now, we're really focused on a storytelling art form and we're working with StoryCorps and a storytelling kumu out of uh, Hawaii Island and Ball State University and Akaku Community Media. So all of our focal points right now are really rooted in storytelling. So I wonder if you can kind of just walk listeners through the process of deciding to apply into maybe meeting Roland Bunda and Stephen K. Aloha and, and the final reveal. Let's hear the story of Lost and Found. All right. Well, I remember coming across the call for proposals. I was, we had just left uh, the continent. We were living in Washington State 
and had uh, arrived um, here on Hawaii Island um, in December of 2018. I remember seeing the call maybe in February or so. And we were here for a temporary uh, job um, opportunity and knew that we'd be heading to Maui that March. And we had visited Maui before, and I had spent a little time in Wailuku and uh, the Iao Valley and felt a connection to, to the story of the place, but was new to it all and hadn't really got a chance to dive deep into the history of why people lived in Wailuku, why people settled there, what was it that uh, that brought everything together for for um, people to call that home. And of course, the story ends up being, just like it is everywhere in the islands here and just about everywhere in the world, is the story of the water. And that's the background of my work, is trying to piece together the fabrics, the textures, the, the colors, the stories of the waters of different places around the world and how we interact with those places and those waters to create lives as humans and how we end up altering the landscapes to fully um, maximize the potential of, of the waterways, whether it be for agriculture or the movement of products and people. And so as that became abundantly clear to me about Wailuku's history to the waters running from the mountain to the sea, Makai, uh, I drew upon some of my past works to think about, well, what's, what's the container? What's the container that really helps tell the story in, um, in a unique way for Wailuku. For people that haven't had a chance to visit the island and to, to visit Wailuku Town, there's this rich history of, um, of beautiful church stained glass windows. Uh, dates back, I think the earliest was in the, the 1870s. And, um, and so I was particularly drawn to that. And having worked on a couple stained glass window projects using digital video of the waterways of different places around the United States and even around the world, uh, that it just became a no-brainer to me that I, I needed to seek out what the what the history of the stained glass was, the history of churches and Christianity to Wailuku Town that made it the, the, the place that it is today, and then learn how we got to the building of churches and how that was integrated into um, more traditional Hawaiian culture and uh, and to help tell that story of the waters and the land. So I spent a lot of time walking around town looking at the, the surviving churches and finding some books in the library that showed me um, original photographs and uh, even some um, uh, uh, etchings and things like that of of town and came across this one picture in this one book that was a collection of old buildings in Wailuku and it was this beautiful interior of this church it's an old black and white must have been shot in the the 20s maybe and the only thing I couldn't see in the photograph were, were the windows. I couldn't see what the what the imaging in the in the in the what I was imagining were stained glass windows. What that was, I could see the altar. I could see the whole church. I think it was taken on like the photo was taken on Easter or something like that. So, you know, the uh, the church was just beautifully decorated. 
but I couldn't see the windows. And I thought, I got I haven't, I haven't heard of this church. I don't know where this one is. And I, okay, it's uh, St. Anthony's Church. Oh, there's a Catholic church here. Okay. So I go and find St. Anthony's on Google Maps and drive down, check it out and realize this is not the church that I'm looking for. Then I'm really intrigued. There's a story here. There's a story here as to what this new church is. It's obviously a church built, I think, in the late 70s or early 80s. Uh, you can tell from the architecture. And, and uh, okay, well, now I just, I gotta find pictures of this church, of this, this lost church from this one photograph and see what those windows look like. I'm really drawn to this idea of bringing back to life the imagery of a church that has now been lost, uh, lost to time, lost to something. And what's that story? And that's where you entered into the picture to help me kind of chase this all down and figure out uh, what is this picture that I found? Why does it not match up with the church that I'm standing in front of? Uh, what, what's this all about? And as it turns out, uh, in 1977, the fall of 77, a little after I was born in the spring of 77, this uh, original St. Anthony's Church uh, was lost to arson. And, you know, there are different details about that. That's not part of the story. That's all that interesting to me. But what was very interesting to me was how uh, it was so hard to find any photographs of the church standing, especially color photographs of the church standing um, from any academic resource from the church itself. And uh, and even after a call to the parishioners to come forth with any photos that they might have of the church that was lost to arson in 77. And what was really incredible to me is this thought that it was kind of lost to memory in this world where we take a trillion photographs collectively as humans every year now that I couldn't find like seven photographs of this church that had only burned down and been, and been lost in 1977. So it's not like we're talking about 1877, which I could understand. I might only find a couple photographs. Um, and so that that whole idea of of the memory of that place and and the things that happened there disappearing in within my lifetime was eye opening that you know, I'm fully aware that we live a temporary life that uh, that everything that we put out there as humanity is a is a temporary reality but that really kind of hit home that it's so temporary that nobody seems to even remember church that was lost in my lifetime. Um, and then you re-entered the, uh, out of the blue, you got a set of photographs, I believe, from Mayor Victorino, the mayor of Maui, or his wife, I can't remember who reached out, of a bunch of very faded color snapshots of their wedding inside the church. I think it was just a year before the, before the church was lost. And it was just this amazing moment of, oh, here are all these out-of-focus, blurry uh, snapshots of the background of the church, you know, with, uh, you know, the happy couple standing in front and the flash going off. And you could just kind of get little glimpses as to what the windows looked like. And, uh, and that was really a turning point. I was starting to lose hope that I wouldn't find any images of the windows and uh, and that, but that was that was when everything seemed possible. This this was this was going to be the the set of windows. This was going to be 
the inspiration for the artwork. Um, in the meantime, before being able to put together what the windows looked like, I had started collecting the video footage of the waterways of that fed that feed the Wailuku River and uh, and out towards um, uh, the bay in uh, Kahului. Um, and trying to capture as many different types of reflections of color off of the water surface, uh, the, the green canopy of the forest re, uh, reflecting off of pools of water in the river, um, capturing video footage of flood waterways, that big concrete structures that help uh, keep water from flooding out neighborhoods uh, further down stream and the sunrise reflecting off of the bay in the morning and trying to capture these greens and reds and yellows and whites and all the colors that I imagined would be in the stained glass window, but didn't really know for sure. Um, from there, it was a matter of kind of taking a lot of artistic liberty from these few photographs to piece together what the design of the front windows to the left and to the right of the main entrance to the church looked like. And I was a little nervous to do that. What I really wanted to do was be able to take maybe even an architectural drawing of the window and get it on the computer and start to work my magic with the, with the video editing processes that I use. Um, I wasn't so comfortable with being a partial designer of the windows, but then realized that's the story. That's the story of that church. That's the story of the faded memories of that church. And that wasn't, that was an empowering moment for the project for me to realize this is about bringing back something from memory and not necessarily trying to transcribe history onto present day. From there, we got to scout locations around town to see what was going to be a good one night only night projection for the public art component to the project. And it became evident immediately that the side of the EL theater was going to be that opportunity, uh, sort of the, the hub of downtown. Um, I always forget the name of the, part, the little plaza. Yeah, it's Can you remind me? Yeah, Kipuka Square. And remind me what Kipuka means. Yeah, a Kipuka, it's almost like an oasis in a vast area. So in my experience uh, working on Koho'olawe, the Kipuka method that Paul Higashino kind of invented in his own world was to plant little bunches and areas of natives rather than spreading them out evenly across the hard pan and they thrive and, and live off of one another. And I remember that. I remember you directly telling me about that while we sat in the in the plaza, talking about the potential of the of the site, and thinking that's exactly what we're doing here. We're we're planting the seed, right? We're planting like the seed of a of a, of a memory to see if it grows and flourishes into community memory and and community building. Um, which we saw happen the night that we got to 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 do a test even. Um, about a month before we went live, we got to do a test and bring the files that I had created 
recreate, reimagining the windows and, and see what they looked like on the, on the side of the EL theater. And it was a pretty, I think it was like a, a Tuesday night or something like that. It was just, and nobody's downtown. Everything, everything was closed for the evening, except for a few people are wondering what in the world are these people doing in the square? What is this thing that they're projecting onto the wall? And there was one person in particular. We had a magic, magic moment. Do you remember? Yeah. That? Yeah. Uh, I'm getting a little sick of my own voice. So why don't you go ahead? No, no. I Okay. Well, two people struck me that night. One, your wife showed up to maybe bring you some food with your son, Leo, who's one of my favorite people on planet Earth. And Mine too. had brought him a firefighter's costume. He was really into costumes and had head to toe firefighter uniform on that said Burley on the back. Because I have an amazing photograph of Leo staring at your projection in his firefighter costume. And it says Burley in big, you know, big block letters. And the other person that stood out to me that night um, was a gentleman, I don't remember his name, whose family had taken out a second mortgage on their home to help rebuild St. Anthony's Church. So when you and I were there at St. Anthony's days prior or weeks prior, it was so long ago now, I, my timeline is off. I we, know. we were told by Stephen K. Aloha and Roland Bunda that I think seven families had taken out second mortgages on their home a tight-knit group of church community members to rebuild that church. And I remember that being a chicken skin moment. And then as your projection of a reimagined St. Anthony's window from 1977 was being tested on the historic Eau Theater with not very many people around, right, in the pitch darkness, one of those seven descendants, right? It was, it was yeah. his parents and he was a well, and, and walked up and said, that looks just like the the front windows of St. Anthony's Church. <laughs> and, I was, and I remember us looking at each other, our jaws dropping and being like, whoa, here it is. Here it is in action. It is coming in like the this, the shared memories are going to flow. Like and we, we were pretty skeptical with how hard it was to find photographs, uh, how, how much we worked to, um, build some buy-in from the community at St. Anthony um, to, to trust that what we were doing uh, was something that was honest and something um, that, that wanted to honor memories. And cause that was, that was a real concern for us after we felt like maybe we hit a couple stone walls um, of, okay, we talked to this person, they weren't very helpful or, or couldn't give any more help. Weren't maybe you were too young to remember and, uh, found all these kind of little roadblocks and then all of a sudden we just we splash light on the wall and this a man emerges from the darkness and was like yes yes here it is this is what this is um yeah we and, had uh not uh maui it was uh one on the oahu campus and the state preservation department and the wailuku public library we got a ton of press seeking photos for you in Maui Time and Maui News. I mean, this was a big search, right, for these yeah. photographs and for people's stories. A, and I remember a big frustrating search. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Andy, it, it brought such an important, it, uh, an important piece of small town big art to light because I remember you saying, maybe I should choose a different church and a different stained glass window. And we talked through it and said, no, this is a huge lesson for our community that these things don't exist and won't exist. They're going to disappear. Yeah. We have to preserve 
you know, these history, sorry, these photographs and these visions and these stories and these moments and, and remind people how important that is or else they go away. Yeah, and how important it is to have a connection to the things that maybe we didn't experience firsthand. So for parishioners, for the for the current church community, to, to know of the church that was lost, that they never went to, never attended, weren't weren't baptized and uh, never were served communion, you know, but maybe their parents were, or their grandparents, and, and to connect to that place and that time and think about their lives there. And, um, and then what losing that center of, of life must have been like. It was, it was scary to think about how easy it's lost, right? And, uh, and and a place that is, you know, sacred ground, even that is is fleeting with time and and the loss of memory. And then came the big night, and I was so excited. It was during First Friday, mind you, right? So mm -hmm. we knew that we would have an audience for you, um, but that moment standing there that night you, we didn't start projecting i think until like 7 30 so it was maybe just 90 minutes of footage but I yeah we couldn't wait for it to get dark enough there was you know that was the event started i think at, at five or something or six and yeah we were like okay let's set up we're ready to go but the, the nerves of of a packed house right of a yes. and uh hoping everything everything turns on we have power we have all these things and uh and yeah, I remember watching the crowd kind of start to, there were people in the square having a bite to eat, hanging out. We go, we go live with the, with the projector and, you know, of course, like, like moths to a candle, everybody's eyes turn up to the wall and what is going on here? And then I could see people walking along the street, the square is off the street settled in nestled between a couple buildings and so people are walking from the, the the street side seeing everybody look at something and and kind of stop traffic the the traffic flow and i remember thinking oh well, this is pretty cool this is <laughs> and again we had another one of those chicken skin moments where somebody was like that's saint anthony's and i was like Oh my gosh! This is, okay. This is amazing. Like as uh, this is the connection we've been looking to uh, to to bring forth. This is a really really amazing moment. Um, yeah, and just to I guess paint the picture a little bit more clearly, what you what you did was you you somehow took the photograph that you ultimately found in Mayor Victorino and his wife's wedding photos. And you took all of the shapes of the stained glass window and brought that into your fancy IT mechanism and filled every individual pane of glass with a piece of video footage of Wailuku River. And then it kind of slowly morphed over the course of several minutes into different color schemes. And it was, you could tell you were looking at running water, but I know there were parts of that window that looked like pure red, you know, or, and you said, oh, those were floating leaves in the river or looked like pure blue, right? And there were all these different beautiful um, pieces that were in your footage that just because the way that you had expertly edited them out really looked like a painting. It was so magical. Um, yeah, you know, and that process is, is can be really difficult and really challenging. Um, 
I I shot over 17 hours of video footage to try and make a three-minute composition. So I vi visited and revisited locations for different times of day, different seasons, to capture the light splashing in different ways off the surface. I even started to play around with some underwater cameras that I could, sort of waterproof cameras that I could set up on the river bed and point up to the sky and watch the surface of the river flow by from below and capture all these little moments that really are individually unique and unlike any other, you can never repeat the patterns which is what draws me to the video footage of waters, but they're ubiquitous moments. They're ones that you would get any, any April, it might look the same, or after any storm, it may look the same, but it's never exactly the same. It's, there, there are these little fingerprints of the moment, but they feel timeless. And that, that's the connection to me to the first inhabitants of the, of the, uh, of the area. They saw the same textures that I saw. They saw the same colors and the same movement that I saw a thousand years removed. And those waters ran for thousands of years before anybody was there to witness it. And the timelessness of those put together with the time sensitive nature of the stained glass window was this nice way to envision the movement of time and the human experience of time versus the reality of 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 nature yeah. we try to paint these images of what's it all mean through our eyes and our experience uh, but if we remove ourselves from it we can realize that a lot a lot of it is just fine without us to be there to see it um, to, I don't know, to circle back uh, to the, that theme of time, the movement of time. Yeah, the contrast or just the relationship that lived within your project between this man-made structure, this place of worship, this community gathering place um, in relationship to this river that carries such an integral part of the state's history mm -hmm. was uh, a deep, and meaningful uh, subject for you to tackle. <laughs> well, as we, you know, as we consider what is what is the the current reality of of our state of of each island, especially in in uh, these pandemic times, and we think about them maybe not being all that interconnected with the story of how we got here or to, to overlay all these histories on top of one another um whether it's the pre-human history of the island or the early settlement or the introduction of christianity or sugar uh plantations um uh all those histories live in the now in these moments and that's what each of those uh kind of microcosms that I capture of this one little spot of the river in April, this uh, one panoramic view of the sun rising over the harbor. They, uh, they, they bring all of those moments into one. Uh, they're, a sh they're a shared reality. 
I don't know. Is that, am I getting too much into quantum physics here? I don't know. I love it. <laughs> no, because also <laughs> I remember being really uh, pleasantly surprised to hear that you were a sculpture professor that had, you know, delved into this world of light work and doing something so technical, right? I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine the programming that you're working with and every little pixel is being edited. And um, so it, it makes sense that your work carries an equal amount of, of just this, this incredible contrast, right? Between something that may, maybe, maybe any viewer can familiarize or connect themselves with and then kind of where that work lives, the soil that it's deeply, you know, rooted in or growing from. So I think that that meeting you as an artist, seeing the artwork that you were creating for Small Town Big Art, and then learning about how you got there was a really long road. <laughs> it was. It, it, I started to do, I, so early in my career as an artist, I was a metal caster. I did bronze castings of objects. I did a lot of uh, translating natural materials like branches or root balls, um, uh, things like that into bronze. Take the temporary nature of, of, of a natural material and make it more permanent and give it a different sense of value. And from there, over the course of the years, I started to integrate these objects into environments that I'd build. And soon the environments became more important than the objects that I put them in. And eventually that became uh, an opportunity to just play with a, a given space, a gallery space, and change the light to maybe filter light through moving water and make the ripples and the shadows of the water fill up the space that you were in and there's no longer an object. And from there, I was like, oh, I have all these videos on my cell phone from every place that I've ever been and stared at the water for 30 seconds. Like, here's the tide coming in on the Jersey Shore. Here's um, the reflection of the riverboat on New Orleans off the Mississippi River. I had all these little snippets and I started thinking, oh, all these, all these little moments, these are, there's something here to do with these. So my light sculptures of transforming a space with ripples and shadows of light turned out to be started to get filled with these projections of these moments. And soon I started thinking, how can I overlay many of these onto each other? And what, what, what would that be? What would that, what would that look like? And to me, it looked like stained glass. It was, it was always like this stained, these stained glass windows in my mind, the texture of, of the leaded glass in stained glass was a lot like, you know, a frozen moment of water. And yeah, I had a lot of learning to do to go from being a guy that welded and cast metal to having to learn about optics and lights and, and motors and all these things to activate spaces with moving lights to then to the computer. And each project kind of feeds a new idea for the next one as I learn the process of editing together these multiple video segments and and it's been a real learning process but what what it's what my work has always been about has been about the movement of time 
whether it was freezing the decay of a natural material in solid metal for millennia to come, or taking these video moments and looping them for, you know, basically, if you could run a computer running them constantly, they could run forever. Uh, these one little moments looped over and over and over again. What does that mean for memory? What kind of opportunities does that have for how we interact as humans with the natural world? How can we consider all these things? Um, and more than anything else, how can somebody start to approach all these ideas? Because these ideas aren't easy to digest all the time. They're not, it's not an easy conversation to start. But if you can start someplace that's beautiful, that is recognizable, um, then we can start, it's easier to dive further in. I'm familiar with a stained glass window. I'm familiar with that stained glass window. Let's talk about what what the waters mean here, right? What, let's talk about who we are as a community today versus 50 years ago or what will be in 50 years and how do we breathe life into that. Uh, and so whether it was what I started doing 25 years ago or what I do next, uh, that those themes underlie it all. Uh, it's just a different delivery system for for starting conversations. <laughs> You're blowing my mind, and I know <laughs> that um, I I keep up on you. I read about you. We keep in touch as best we can. But your your current work or your work since you moved forward from small town big art has been focused on, or what I've seen has been focused on traditional Hawaiian quilt making and its relationship to wahipana or storied places, is that right? Um, yeah, so the, I've, I, beyond just uh, staying, being interested in stained glass textures and staying, um, I've, I'm really drawn to textiles and, and translating textiles from, um, from a static uh, uh, entity to using the pattern, the patternry of, of textiles to integrate the video works. And so we have a really nice, um, amazing and unique textile format in, in Hawaii, in Hawaii uh, based on uh, the, the uh, based on Hawaiian quilts. And there are two basic types that I've been drawn to. One is the more traditional, um, like red fabric applique of a floral pattern onto a white background. And then there's this rich history of flag quilts. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm working more directly with the flag quilts right now on this project for the Honolulu Museum of Arts upcoming Artists of Hawaii Now exhibition. They have a very rich collection of these types of flag quilts and Hawaiian quilts. And so I got to dive into their collection uh, pre-COVID and, uh, and kind of pick out a, a quilt that I wanted to re-engage with and reimagine and create a video version of. And so for those who aren't familiar with the quilt, the flag quilt tradition, uh, it basically works that there is a center panel on a large square quilt that is the uh, shield of uh, the royalty of of, the, of Hawaii, of the kingdom of Hawaii, and which is now kind of translated as part of the seal of the state. And then the uh, Republic's flag 
which is now the state flag, which is a Union Jack up in the upper left-hand corner, and then eight red, white, and blue stripes that represent the eight um, uh, major islands of, of the archipelago. And so four flags act as a trim border around that center panel. And so what I'm doing is I've been going around. Original plan was to go to every of the eight islands and capture video footage of the waters and the waterways of each to create to recreate the quilt using one set of footage to replace white fabric, another to replace red, blue, and there's a couple gold sections of the of the quilt that I chose. And have each one of these different compositions fade in and out of each other and uh, so that we can see how they there are all these shared textures between the different places on the islands and all these shared experiences of those places. And they tell the human history of, of the island and uh, in, in, a, in different ways. So that's been curtailed a little bit in scope because of COVID. I was able to start shooting video pre-COVID. Um, and have some from visits to islands dating back to 2017 that I have been using. So this is becoming this project that's gonna span basically five years. Uh, some of the footage that I'll use uh, for my Maui composition was captured during my, um, my working on the Small Town Big Art project. Uh, and so that gets to overlap all these different time periods in a different way too, which has been an interesting part of the process for me and a necessary one because I haven't been able to revisit everywhere. Yeah. Grand, grand ideas. But I am I have been able to uh complete compositions for Maui, um, Oahu, Hawaii Island, and Kauai. And I head out next week, a week from today, to visit Koho'olawe um, for my first access to the island. Um, for those who don't know, Koho'olawe is uh, also known as the, the, the bombing island. The, the US military had taken control of the island after Pearl Harbor and then used it as a training um, bombing site for many years until 1990. And it's slowly being um, reclaimed from that history uh, by uh, an organization called Kirk that is bring, allowing me to access the island and go over with them to capture the textures of the waters flowing from uh, from the top of the island down to to the reefs. Um, I feel particularly honored and awed to have that opportunity. Uh, one of which one which was brought to me directly because of my work with um, small town big art. Um, uh, so that's uh, that's what's on the horizon. That goes live in September, um, and will be on view for I think six months. They're still working out the details of how to have a visitor um, experience at the museum, and um, um, so we'll see how that all works. But it. The original quilt has not been on view in some 40 or 50 years, I think. Uh, it has some damage to it, which makes it not necessarily a textbook-worthy uh, quilt, 
Uh, but I was drawn to that based off of like the work on Lost and Found uh, in Wailuku, thinking about this thing that would be, it's basically lost to the doldrums of the vault of the museum and to breathe a new life into it and bring it out of storage and give it an excuse to, to be seen again alongside uh, my video projection uh, interpretation of it is a, is a really special opportunity. Yeah, and I guess you know, I wanna talk a little bit about public art and how it relates or contrasts in your world from gallery or studio art, which I imagine is really quite different for a light artist or an electronic-based artist, right? So I think about the example of working with Maui Academy of Performing Arts. Um, they had a writer and local thespian, Kathy Collins, write a play called Birds of a Feather about four birds representing different kind of ethnicities in Wailuku and all vying to be the next state bird. And she spent time walking through the streets of Wailuku and talking to people and kind of getting their characteristics and, and really building that into the script for that play. And when we have mural artists out in the streets, you know, they're, they're out there for anywhere between 10 and 15 days talking to people, exchanging, maybe making slight changes to their composition based on what they're hearing. So what's your public art process like? How do you ensure? I mean, for us, it was a huge challenge during Lost and Found, but we made it work, you know, so I have a very clear understanding of how that process worked um, in terms of getting photos from members of the community that ultimately led to your composition and ensuring that the stories that we were hearing played a really important part in the dialogue, right? Kind of in the... Yeah. In well, the you know, for me, there's a lot of, it's about uh, making a project that can dive into these bigger, deeper ideas, but be accessible to anybody and to come across it in that, that sense of uh, spontaneous experience is, to me, a much more powerful way to to get somebody's mind rolling than them having to take these distinct um, mo this um, yeah how do I want to say that you have to make an effort to go into a gallery to go into a museum you have to make the time you have to you have to kind of be prepared in in mind and body to to go do this to go experience art and that's a, can be a really intimidating thing for people, uh, understandably, because I think a lot of art is not particularly accessible to just anybody, uh, especially, you know, fine art uh, in a museum and a gallery. And it can be like, well, I'm not going to walk into that gallery because I'm not buying anything today. You know, I, I'm, not buy, I'm not buying, I'm not going in, I'm not going into the museum. I don't have two hours to go through the museum. Most of it's boring, most of it's stuffy. So the public arena is really this unique place to just catch somebody for a moment um, with especially like this, the uh, Lost and Found project. People were there for dinner uh, on this big, it's a big street party. Everyone's there to pick up some street food and catch some live music, hang out, talk story, catch up with everybody, Pahana at the end of the week, like this, Nobody's going to First Friday to go have some sort of art experience uh, of this nature and then to just bang into it and get that moment. That's uh, you, you, you as an artist, I get to uh, engage with 
anybody instead of just the, the select few that are going to walk through the door of a gallery or um, maybe I've done a lot of projects on university campuses. So I get this very small community of people that are going to come see this thing at the college, right? Um, and then maybe come hear me talk about it for, you know, for an hour. And uh, I might have 20 people in a room. But, you know, the night of Love Lost and Found of that first Friday, we there, there were, you know, thousands, maybe hundreds or a thousand or so people that, just walked by and saw it and got a glimpse and uh, and saw something that they'd never seen before. Um, whether they make all the connections that I do through the hours long, days long process of putting together these puzzles, capturing the video footage, editing it and all that, I get to think about it a whole lot, or maybe too much. Uh, they get a piece of it and they, they can maybe get a, a just a moment of beauty, uh, a moment of reflection of what is that and uh, and maybe they will look at a lot of the things in their daily life just a little different because they came across this thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and it took no effort of theirs to get there. And I think that that is one of the big powerful aspects of public art that maybe gets overlooked a bit, that it's it's there for people to to just bump into. Like, I go out of my way to go see public art. Like, oh, I, I know there's this thing in Hilo. I gotta go see that. Um, there's, oh, I'm gonna be on Oahu next week. I gotta oh I, I gotta hit this this and this these these new things I saw on you know one of my social media feeds or in a newsletter. Every now and again I'll bump into something I had no idea was there, and that is there is this like self discovery moment in those that is as powerful, not more powerful than making the plans to go see the thing that you're. Yeah, uh, and so know. in your opinion, and and also coming as an educator, right? Your past life mm -hmm. as a as a professor. What advice, if any, would you give um, emerging artists that want to dip their toes or get involved in the public art field? Or like, what characteristics or skill sets do you think that that yeah. differentiate the public art field from the other fields? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, you have to want to collaborate. So you are not going to come up with an idea and and it be set through from the image in your mind to what is going to end up resulting from the process there's lots of interested parties and especially when it comes to funding uh that you have to be maintain flexibility and that is for me that's easy my art process isn't about i get this image in my mind and then i set forth to create it i get an idea and then the process informs what the final product is. And so in that sense, what I do and the way that I work is a great, is a great match for public, for public art. Um, the other thing you have to do is you have to, you have to communicate what it is that you do well, and you have to do that verbally and in writing. And it's without the, the, uh, the grant writing and proposal writing process, um, it's it's really hard to get any traction, uh, to get any trust in what you're going to do because it's hard to if it's too hard to communicate, then it's too hard to imagine for somebody else. Uh, so yeah, flexibility and the ability to communicate are I think what set up an artist to thrive in the in the in the public art field. Beautiful, yeah. As a communications professional, I'm so drawn 
to public art and, you know, with an arts background, specifically because I get to work with artists that have no qualms about explaining why they're doing what they're doing, what they hope it will accomplish. Um, you know, having gone to art school and been to museums and, you know, exhibits and plays all over the planet, few things frustrate me personally more than seeing an artist statement that sounds like a haiku, right? It's kind of a poem that I'm not invited to. It's just another thing for me to translate. I don't feel, you know, that I'm meant to be there, um, which isn't to say that I can't appreciate beautiful art that doesn't, it isn't clearly telling me what its intention is, but public art takes it a step further. It's not just something to look at or something to experience. It's also something that should spur a dialogue and, and yeah. you know, inspire. Yeah. I've always looked at the work as not, not an opportunity for me to tell somebody what to think about something, but for me to learn about something in the process of making it, put it out there, and have it be the go-between to a for a conversation between me and somebody in the audience. They respond to it, not to me, and then I get to talk to them about that. And what what is this to you? What do you? What is this? What what does this evoke uh, emotionally, memory, artistically for you as the viewer looking at this? Instead of me telling you what I think about it, um, and that again, that's just a, a great forum for that is the public arena and uh and through all that it becomes maybe a little a little less scary for anybody to just walk up to me while i'm standing there in the middle of a square and talk to me about what it is i do and why and uh and then i learn more from those conversations than than any in any lecture hall i've ever been in and it kind of takes separating your ego from the conversation of the process. I would say you have to have a really solid sense of self and certainty that, you know, you're coming to the table because a lot of people are putting their, their faith in your ability yeah. to create something wonderful. Um, and that some people might not resonate with it or they might see something really different. And I think you need to be really okay with that and open to those different interpretations of your work. Yeah, uh, it and it's it's really important to uh, to embrace the fact that limitations are empowering. The more limitations that there are on a project, and there are a lot in public art, the more those those open up other opportunities. And so to follow the the progress of the work through that, and it can be frustrating, and it can be uh, disheartening at times, but you weave through all these little obstacles on your way to this big project, and uh, and the project ends up being stronger because you've already dealt with all these other issues along the way than maybe what the the first image that came to your mind of what it should be was. Uh, keeping that flexibility um, and embracing that part of it, like I said, that's e that's always been easy for my process, and I can imagine how it would not fit many other personalities and many other processes. Uh, but if, yeah, 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 I feel lucky to have found it. I feel lucky that I live in a time where it's it, it's an option that there are these opportunities in places like Wailuku of all of, of anywhere. You know, I uh, lived in rural Washington State and found opportunities to do this type of work there, which I never would have imagined. And I thought it was all going to have to be Seattle, Portland, LA, big cities, 
and the you know small rural towns in in Montana were calling me to to do a project, and you guys got this uh, amazing pro program started in Wailuku, uh, where if you thought it was going to be happening in the state, it would only be able to happen in Honolulu, right? And right. Uh, but and then that brings a whole different audience, and those audiences are what draw me to continue writing proposals and continue to be. Uh, inspired by the different opportunities that are set up by these programs. Yeah, and I think that the proverb that you ultimately settled on, each small town big art project um, goes through a process with Haleho Ike Ike of, of finding the right fit in an Alolo Noeau, and yours was no task is too big when done together by all, and it's such a fitting proverb, I think, for the entire program, right? Because yeah. ultimately, you're going to be including a lot of different moving pieces and people. Well, and then a bit, you know, having the experience of being the first of this uh, of this project, we everybody had a bit of a learning curve to figure out, you know, how do we do this? How, who all do we need to uh, have come together? You know, you have this thought of, oh, we have, you know, our, our little council of people that choose the artwork and we have some connections in the community. And before you know it, you realize, well, those aren't the connections that we needed for this project. Like, we, <laughs> so who do we need to connect to and who do we get to bring into the family of this project? And that was really a great part for me, too. You know, we, the EL Theater, the historic EL Theater ended up being the right place for my project, but it also ended up being the right people to help facilitate making it happen. And I ended up going on to work with them on other projects that had nothing to do with small town big art. And that's what community is, right? Circling back around to each other for to exploit the, uh, the, the strengths of everybody in the community. Uh, they're good at this. Oh, I would never have met them if it had not been for this project. And oh, now we get to work on this new one. And that builds community within the um, the downtown corridor there and and the artists. Yeah, and it's interesting. We have you know a a winning process, I think, at this point, but it's certainly not a template, a replicable template, mm -hmm. because yeah. I've had several potential partners approach me saying, "We want to do what you're doing in Wailuku for our business or for our community or for our neighborhood." can you just give us the 10 steps that we need to follow to make that happen, right? And it's like, oh, that's not, that's not how public art full stop right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it has to be a really organic process of, you know, sharing with your community what the artist is interested in and then allowing discourse between the artist and community to, to develop that concept and then figuring out ways to engage the community in either experiencing the art or the process of creating the art. Um, I know there's one fantastic photograph of you with your laptop in the middle of St. Anthony's Church showing the, you know, the, the clergy there, your, your process, and their eyes are bugging out of their face, and it was such an exciting moment, you know, to witness. Yeah. Um, that, that was pretty amazing. I remember going in to to meet with them for the first time and I had already chosen this, this is what I'm doing and oh my gosh, I hope that they're on board with it and uh, and trying to tell them, oh, well, here's what I'm doing and getting the blank stare, the, the okay, um, so what does that mean? And then pulling out, the, oh, hold on, let me get the laptop out. This is gonna make a lot of sense here in a moment. Um, and yeah, then, 
total buy-in, right? That like, I see, I see what you're doing. I understand what you're doing. And yes, yes, we want to share this with, with everybody. And um, yeah, that's the beauty of, of, of such a project, right? And is, who is the patron yeah. saint of um, St. Anthony's Church? Oh yes, St. Anthony is the patron saint of lost items. <laughs> yes, the finder of lost articles. The finder of lost articles. <laughs> to St. Anthony we pray. <laughs> yeah, so that was a really fun kind of 360, right? We came full circle in that moment when we were trying to figure out, because we walked into the offices there and there, there it was, right? A gigantic, I think, 18 by 24 black and white photograph of what we'd been searching for for months. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, black and white, and we like the the windows are kind of blurred out, but there was the shape there, and I said, well, that's the window, I that's the window right there that I'm that I'm working on, and uh, but we still don't know what it looked like. Yeah, it was uh, it was great, and so many people touched uh, a corner of the project, and without it, it couldn't have happened. Um, without all of that, um, all that feedback, all of those people sharing a little bit. Uh, I, you know, we got caught up in looking for the person that would open up all the doors. And in that process, what we found were a whole bunch of people that were willing to hold the door open for a minute. Um, and, and that was, that was even, that was more rewarding in the end than finding that one person that could have handed us everything on a platter. Oh yeah. And, and that's exactly it. You just described what the it is in this program in public art. You really just have to take it one breadcrumb at a time and see where the process leads you and ultimately that's organic community building right there's no template to community building there's no replicable process it's yeah we have you know we have our, our what works and what doesn't work but each project takes on a life of its own and takes us on a wild ride to this beautiful um, end point, you know, and that's equally, you know, equally beautiful. The process and the product are really just equally exciting. Yeah, yeah. And so if you like the process, <laughs> yeah, it's the right, it's the right world for you. So closing remarks, Andy, anything else you want to just share about either small town big art or your work or the experience of working with Wailuku? Yeah, you know, I, revisiting it you know basically two years later uh in a world that has changed so dramatically uh i do realize that as a newcomer to um the maui community when i first got there to start this project uh that i felt like oh i don't know i don't know how anyone's going to open up to this guy that just showed up and is going to do this 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 what thing this <laughs> i don't even understand what you're doing uh, to having that final engagement with everybody at the rollout of the project and, and seeing the, the eyes light up and everything. Yeah, just that journey was pretty remarkable, but also indicative of what these projects can be. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I did, going off on a tangent, I'm not sure what I was about to say, but uh, I just feel very thankful that I was was able to participate with a community that wasn't initially mine and now isn't anymore, but I'll always feel this connection through the project and, uh, and I'll always have a better understanding of, of Wailuku, of the community in Wailuku, 
um, and the history of the place because of this project. Uh, and I'm forever thankful for that. Well, I want you to know that your project was so meaningful to me and helping to build this program and the process that we went through together and the process of becoming friends um, was really meaningful. And I, I, util I use your project as an example of the Wailuku community all the time. Um, so thank you for that experience and for being a part of Small Town Big Art. I'm getting off a clump here. <laughs> thank you, Andy. Thank you so much, Kelly.